0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 208, I Heart Henry. Well, good lord, last time Henry VII went and died on us, after a reign of 24 years, which is, as you know, a reasonably substantial reign. What I thought I'd do today, with your permission, though (laughs) honestly it's a little late to object, is describe the immediate events after Henry's death, and the start of the new reign, and then have a wee chat about what we think of Henry VII. Was he as mad as a box of cheese by the end? Was he as effective as he said he was? Did he really save England from the chaos of the Wars of the Roses? Was he in fact a Tudor nincompoop? Is that really even a word? Which is of course a terrible question, because now I've gone to the OED and looked it up. Nincompoop. First used in 1673, would you believe? And no one knows where it comes from. But to poop, interestingly, originally meant to fool or deceive. Ha! Huh. And then also nincompoopania is also a word. A 19th century aesthetic movement pouring scorn on dandism. I say again, ha! Huh, good golly, Miss Molly. And anyway, onward. So, as we heard yesterday, on April the 21st, 1509, Henry VII breathed his last It was a very public death, as it happens, or at least there were a number of people present. But I guess that's the case with all monarchs. Now, one of them, Thomas Rottesley, did a drawing which is rather nice, and which you can see at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. There are a cast of thousands standing round the bed. Well, I exaggerate, there are about 14 people, or 15, since we have to include Garter Herald Thomas Rottesley sketching away at the back off camera. Most of the peoples are grooms and ushers and there are three physicians carrying pots, looking worried, nervously fingering their necks. One of those round the bed is a young Thomas Wolsey, but in pride of place is Henry's chief supporter for so many years, Richard Fox, Bishop of Winchester, administering the last rites. Also present was Hugh Dennis, Henry's groom of the stool, an older man now of 70 and probably reflecting that Henry's death would be the end of his career, which could have been a matter of joy or sorrow, I know not which these 14 men decide to keep the information about Henry's death to themselves. The thing is that the 21st of April was close to the gathering of the Knights of the Garter on the 23rd of April, St George's Day, England's National Day. And this meant that all the great and the good would be assembled, or a lot of them anyway. And hate it or loathe it, there was an issue. You'd have to have been a blithering idiot not to notice that the last few years had been a bit painful in many ways, with emps and Dud wreaking havoc, coming down on everything that moved and generally lording it over every royal adviser, noble and corporation in sight. It transpired pretty quickly that quite a few people had been resenting their power and influence for some time. The likes of Thomas Lovell, Richard Fox, Hugh Dennis had known and understood their master pretty well and knew when to object, when to keep quiet. But there seems to be little doubt that there'd been more than a little resentment at the meteoric rise of this pair. I mean literally zero to hero in a few months. Now their assent had rather demonstrated that Henry didn't carry a lot of Ruth around with him. So one of the casualties, for example, had been Giles D'Albany when in 1506 he'd been hammered with a £2,000 fine for exacting too many fees from Calais. In the roll call of excessive fines, this is of course somewhere around the snake's bum when compared to £145,000, but nonetheless... For a man so close to Henry of such conspicuous loyalty, it's more than a little harsh. When Daubeny died in 1508, his will croaked of his loyalty to the king, quite probably in irritation at the unfairness of it all. Back in London, Richard Ensom and Edward Dudley were taking precautions. It's not entirely clear for what. But they knew the king was very ill, and it wouldn't have been a massive leap for them to realise that they'd come to be seen as the unacceptable face of Tudor England. Now, both of them would have reacted to such a charge, like a defender at Chelsea, a look of injured innocence, or even mindless fury at the very suggestion. Because most men, without doubt, saw themselves as loyal servants of the king. And actually, gentle listeners, Emsom Dub had a point. They were standing on reasonably solid ground, intellectually at least. There's little doubt Henry knew full well what they were doing. He regularly reviewed Dudley's accounts. But nonetheless they both expected some kind of trouble, and quite probably, of course, from the people they'd wronged and from whom they'd extorted so much cash. So they gathered some hairy blokes around them and demanded oaths of loyalty from them at their grand houses in the City of London to make sure that when the likes of the Stanleys and the Bergervennes came to visit with a grim look on their faces, they would be ready, with faces equally grim as they faced boldly forward with the help of their new-found hairy chumps, they weren't looking for the thin stiletto that was inching towards their backs. On the 23rd of April, the Knights of the Garter assembled. Not all of them were there. Kildare the Great Earl, for example, hadn't come over from Ireland, and closer to home Northumberland and Buckingham, they were all absent. But the stalwarts of the old regime were all there. John De Vere, for example, looking reasonably grizzled. And you can bet that Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell were in the centre of it all. As a little wrinkle, that included the Lady of the Garter, namely one Margaret Beaufort. Ladies of the Garter had been a reasonably well-established idea. Edward IV, for example, was very keen on the ladies. After Margaret was appointed in 1488, though, no new ladies were appointed until the wife of Edward VII in 1901. Which is completely irrelevant as concerns that meeting in 1509. What is relevant is that Margaret was there and she'd proved time after time that pious, over-anxious, pain-in-the-backside mother-in-law she might be, but tough political operator she was most certainly also. Present also, of course, was the young king, Henry, only 17 years old, now out from the protective and suffocating wing of his father's attention. In all probability, towering over most members of the council, but oddly, no one there treated him like a king. Those that were in the know all treated him just as though Henry was still alive, and that he was still a two-bit prince. It was all done most sensitively and subtly. Clearly, not every garter knight was quite the thing, so partway through the proceedings, Richard Weston came in, and he murmured discreetly into ears of quote, certain lords. Richard Weston was known publicly as just another esquire of the body, but in practice, he'd been Henry's new spymaster when Bray had disappeared. We don't know exactly who got called into that inner circle that day, but you can bet Devere. Fox. Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, would have been all there, as would the rather grim Archbishop of Canterbury, William Wareham. As far as the others were concerned, these leading councillors were being called through to the next room to talk to the king. They might have imagined a happy, smiling king, greeting and laughing and joking behind the closed door. Well, it's a bit unlikely, but anyway, a living king. The following day, one of Dudley's servants was carrying some letters through the narrow streets of London when he was seized, and the letters taken from him and ripped open. Edmund Dudley, meanwhile, was doing his best to concentrate on getting some work done, despite an irritating urge to chew on some grass. If he'd looked out of the window, he might have seen a worrying number of iron pot helmets and pikes. At his mansion by the River Thames, Richard Empson might also have seen the same phenomenon, followed by mm, the crashing of doors and splintering of wood. Their time in the sun was over. Empson and Dudley were hauled off to the tower. This was stage one. Later in the morning, the death of the king was finally announced to the world and the rule of the new king celebrated. The following day, a pardon was announced. It was claimed that the old king had been just about to make the same announcement when, unfortunately, he'd been delayed on hmm, the account of being dead. The pardon has been seen as another act of remorse from a dying king, hoping to swing it with the law that he was a good guy, really. But that argument depends on thinking that it had really been the old king's idea, It could just as well have been the new lot, pretending the old guy was really a jolly nice type after all. Either way, that pardon announced a return to the good old laws, that there would be no unfairness anymore, that equity would rule, gone were the informers and promoters. Actually, this wasn't uncommon at times of regime change, an announcement to tell the world that things were different now, that the clouds were lifting, we can all see clearly now, the sunshine was coming out and all that. This time round... Bills, telling everyone this, were printed, so by the 6th of April they were all over the place. No one could complain they didn't know, or not in London anyway. It appears to have been printed by a chap called Richard Pinson. Now everyone knows William Caxton's name being first and all that, but Pinson is also a famous name. This is because it is he that helps the English state recognise the importance of printing as a propaganda tool. Essentially, just like Caxton, Pinson followed the money and established links with the top men with top budgets in Westminster, John Morton, Richard Fox. So in 1509, it was unsurprising that Fox headed for Pinson with his rush job, and no doubt Pinson's presses and print devils were hard at work all night. In 1512, all the brown nosing paid off when Pinson became the official state printer. Until his death in 1529, Pinson worked hand in glove with Woolsey to deploy the power of printing in support of official policy. Anyway, that's in the future. You can see where all this is going, can you not? That night, the council, dominated by Garter Knights, reasoned that the last few years had been a bit of a mare, one way or another. On the council, of course, the proper balance was now re-established, with aristocrats leading the discussion, rather than Henry being hidden away behind closed door with those grubby bureaucrats. The proper balance in the view of the old guard aristocracy, of course, so given these were the kind of people who'd been so relentlessly hammered by Empson and Dudley, it's unsurprising they were eager to see a complete reversal of policy and distance the new regime from the old one. Now, of course, going out and telling the world that the old king had gone overboard was really not the way it was done back then, simply not an option. And so, a couple of scapegoats were needed. And who better than Empson and Dudley? Once the scapegoats had been thrown to the lions, torn to shreds, bloods and bits of flesh everywhere, it would then be possible to change whatever they wanted to change. Of course, the man that could have stopped any of this was the new king, the 17-year-old Henry. He could have taken the view that he didn't want his father's careful work overturned, he didn't want the old nobility making a comeback. But the young King Henry was quickly to turn out to be the most traditional of medieval kings. These bureaucratic types were all very well the young prince would be perfectly happy to use them. After all, the lower classes were so handy, you could just throw them away, throw them away when they were done. But this was a prince absolutely convinced that the nobility were designed to be at the king's right hand, that the nobility were his natural partners, that it was in their presence that he would be the most happy. Henry would quickly show that there was no one keener to reverse the approach his fathers had taken. The nobility were there to ride to war and glory with their king. All of this was a little unfortunate for Emsom and Dudley. Okay, they'd thoroughly enjoyed their time in the sun and gone at it with more than a little gusto, but they'd been doing their king's bidding. But hey, I guess, who said life was fair? Hopefully their mother had taught them that before they left home. So their houses were ransacked and anything of value removed for the greater glory of the king. Men like Camby had been the hatchet men for them, were arrested and fell with their masters. The pair of them were accused of treason. This was arrant nonsense. They'd been doing their king's bidding. Don't get me wrong, both of them had used their position to fight their own battles and their respective nests were as feathered with down and the softest mosses as anyone could have wished for. But treason? Nah. The council had planned for it, though. They knew that if they went for emps and duds' activity... They'd end up implicating the old king's policy, and that would never do. So they went for the cock-and-bull story, that when they'd assembled their followers in the days before the death of the king, they'd been planning a rebellion. To be fair, although both men did their best to argue the toss, neither of them would have been surprised. Empson was taken away to his hometown of Northampton, and in October 1509 he argued his own case, and lost, of course. Both of them duly ended up in the Tower of London. They stayed there quite a long time. But Fox and Henry VII's government was inundated, inundated with complaints from all and sundry Englishmen about the various unfairnesses visited on them by Empson and Dudley. And eventually, in August 1510, Henry just got bored with it all. Oh, come on, not that again. I'm busy hunting. Oh, have them executed on Tower Hill. Stop bothering me. While he was waiting in the Tower, Edmund Dudley wrote an interesting document. It was basically a confession. He seems to have decided that he'd clear his conscience, let it all out. He lists 84 instances where he thinks people had been unfairly treated. He also wrote a letter to Thomas Sunneth apologising for the injustice envisited on him and promising to personally reimburse him if the new king didn't. I cry you and your wife mercy, he wrote. The letter was actually written to Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell. And although it's a confession of injustices, it's also clearly an attempt to win some sympathy, because it essentially makes the point that Dudley was the monkey, not the organ grinder, the goat, not the scape. Explicitly, Dudley makes the point that the king wanted these victims at his danger. It was a nice effort. It was a nice effort, which had absolutely no chance of success whatsoever. This was not what Richard Fox and Thomas Lovell wanted to hear. And so... It was filed under B1N, filed for 500 years as it happens, before it came to light once more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the old regime had gathered itself and washed its hands of the pains of the last few years. Henry VII's will contained enough bequests to say an absolutely extraordinary 10,000 masses for his soul, which again suggests a man who was worried about something. Henry was laid to rest in the chapel in Westminster that he'd commissioned specially for the purpose, beside his wife. Which brings us, gentle listeners, to the end of one reign and the start of a new, but we'll leave our new reign to a future episode, and give the rest of today to the man we're seeing the back of, Henry Tudor, Earl of Richmond, the founder of one of England's most famous and fascinating dynasties. A wee while ago, we introduced Henry and his reputation, a reputation affected by two great influences. Firstly, by Henry's very own propaganda. Without any sense of false modesty, here he was, saviour of the country, the only man capable of putting out the fires of the Wars of the Roses. What a hero. Well done. Way to go, me. And then to chaos, firm, fair, stable foundation of a new dynasty which would propel England to glory. I'm tempted to cry Harry, St George and all that sort of thing. And then the great historian and politician Francis Bacon, whose judgments have stayed with us for 400 years, of a successful, careful king, no doubt, who achieved whatever he put his mind to, but a threatening, dour, sour tyrant, Bacon's dark prince. Essentially, Henry's popular reputation ain't great. He's been attacked, of course, by the Ricardians, accused of unfairly blackening the name of good King Dickon and creating a fictitious myth. Whatever his achievements, he's not well known. He's a little dull. By way of example, I have been reading a popular book on the Tudors, which shall remain nameless, and the thing doesn't even bother to cover Henry the Seventh. It starts with his son. Tell me that's not irritating. There have been films and tele-programs galore about Henry VIII and all his wives, Elizabeth I, even Lady Jane Grey and of course Mary. No one is going to make a blockbuster about Henry VII. Not even Shakespeare could be bothered. It could be, of course, that Shakespeare was just bad at maths, you know, Henry V, Henry VI, Henry VIII. Henry VII is seen at best as worthy but dull. At worst, and to make him a bit more interesting, it's the Dark Prince theme that gets picked up. I've used Thomas Penn's Winter King a lot in the making of these podcasts and Thomas Penn goes to that big time. Very good book. Creates a real sense of the sinister, spider-like figure at the centre of events. But you do get the feeling that Penn works awfully hard at that side of the story to sex it up a bit. Henry's left with a reputation that varies from being the evil Tudor that sank the glorious House of York to the grey, dull, colourless, grinding, relentless automaton whose only real achievement was to set things up for his much sexier son. I suspect his mother doesn't help. I feel bad about Margaret Beaufort. Here was an impressive person, without any shadow of a doubt. I mean, by golly, she had a child at the age of 13, was under constant threat and danger. Her son was incarcerated and hunted for his skin. Here was clearly a consummate political operator, and by the standards of the time was deeply admired for her piety but she's very difficult to like. We really can't know how she and her daughter-in-law got on, but I strongly suspect that Elizabeth must have wished the mother-in-law had gone on an extended cruise for the odd mm, decade or three. It's unfair, but it kind of reflects on Henry that he'd rather let his mother happen to his wife. Tricky situation, though, isn't it? Plus, even the worthy but dull ticket has been challenged. Recent historians have pointed out that he really didn't have any challenges to his rule, so what was he worrying about? with no credible claimants left after Richard had died on Bosworth Field, that his paranoia and wildly excessive suspicion and tyranny were so over-the-top and cack-handed that he almost provoked his nobility to find someone nonetheless so desperate were they. They point to the collective sigh of relief everyone breathed when he croaked. And I should come clean that I started this firmly in the anti-Henry camp. As a lifelong lover of the much more charismatic Yorkists, I admit to historical bias and undue influence. I am at this moment sitting at my computer wearing nothing but sackcloth and a hairy shirt. I have an urn by my side and every so often the shed is subjected to a scatter of dust and echoes to the sound of self-flagellation. But I have changed, gentle listeners, I have changed. As I have progressed through the story, it seemed to me that Henry has had a bad press. I can feel horror as I say these words, but it's true. The personal character of the king is one area where Henry, it seems to me, has been very poorly sold and needs a good PR agency involved. The dull grey thing, I suspect, is very unfair. So, the personal descriptions we have of him don't say, oh, he was a dull grey sort of thing, a bit like a 16th century John Major without the extended philtrum. No, they talk about a man with twinkly blue eyes. They talk about a man very animated in conversation. They talk about an erudite and learned man. They talk about a courteous host. Then there's the family bit. That slightly icky mum thing doesn't play well here and in fact I suspect it is indeed a tiny bit icky. Francis Bacon represented the relationship with Elizabeth in very subdued terms. Towards his queen he was nothing uxorious nor scarce indulgent but companionable and respective without jealousy. But what little we know points to something rather warmer. The news of the death of Arthur for example is really quite heart-wrenching. In fact I'm not sure that Elizabeth doesn't come out rather cooler with her oh, don't worry, we can always get another one line. Though, of course, I accept that's probably deeply unfair reporting of actual events. Plus, he really doesn't sound like a grim bloke to be with. He might have been avaricious, but certainly he was no miser. He knew how to throw a party, and throw parties he did. Now, I'm not suggesting that gambling makes you a fun guy to be with, but the fact that he liked playing games and gambled on those games many times and then cheerfully paid up, well doesn't fit that well with a grey, suspicious, miserly image. He had a love of tennis, took it up enthusiastically and played as often as he could. Well, this sounds again like a man capable of enthusiasms. He was clearly capable of great charm. He was perfectly capable of being sensitive and thoughtful. The story of his kindness to Catherine after the wedding to Arthur demonstrates all of this. Though accepted, not all of us have access to priceless diamonds to cheer up the rest of the family, but hey, I'm told it's the thought that counts he does rather leave poor Catherine swinging in the wind after her husband dies more than a little brutally. But this was a matter of state, after all, and away from matters of state, he was rather noted for acts of kindness and thoughtfulness in bequests to servants of the household. Then there's the tyrant, the schemer, the spymaster, the brutal breaker of the nobility. Well, I suspect here again it's very possible to interpret some of these events, anyway, in a very different light. So, For example, there's a story of Richard Grey, Earl of Kent. The story goes that Kent was a waster, spent money like water and got himself into terrible debt. Desperate, he abducted an heiress who was in wardship. The story then goes that Henry milked all of this, unfairly for all he was worth, confiscated the young ward from Kent, imposed hideous fines. Kent kept going as he was, and before you could say bailiff, he was unable to pay his fines and debts, at which point Henry is supposed to have exploited the situation to the hilt forcing Kent to sign over the income from his Welsh estates and agree to a schedule of repayments, on which he then defaulted. So Henry then had Kent bound in recognisance of a £10,000 not to sell, lease or grant any of his lands without the king's consent and he was forced to attend on the king, quote, so that he be seen daily once a day in the king's house. All of this is represented in one book as, quote, a confidence trick string him along, then hit him with fines and use the situation to take his lands off him. Well, it's easily represented as a story of a blithering in the had control and the king trying to force some self-control on him and protect his patrimony. Henry takes revenue for the payments of the debts, not the land itself. And there are similar stories of Richard Guildford and George Tallboys that I think you can interpret very differently rather than emphasising Henry's avarice. So, I have to say that in my summary of Henry Tudor now knowing rather more than I did at the beginning, he's pretty positive. In foreign policy, he really is eminently sensible. I mean, OK, this is the judgment of a rather overweight middle-aged bloke who likes sitting in sheds, rather than the 12-year-old searcher after glory and innovation of yesteryear. I mean, clearly, Henry's no Napoleon, nothing to set the blood racing. But he doesn't send thousands of men to their death and ruin the national economy for no sensible gain, which is more than can be said for his much sexier son. He shows he's absolutely no mug, he mixes it with that consummate schemer Ferdinand of Aragon and comes out ahead of points. At home, yes, there's no denying he uses spies to seek out information about his subjects, he comes down hard on his nobility. It's not hard to see why he was deeply unpopular, you have to say his financial methods were inflammatory and in some cases pretty outrageous. The accusation of avarice is pretty unavoidable but can I point out he's far from the first king of England to be accused of that and he was essentially right in concluding that safety lay in having wealth and power beyond that of his nobles. But as to the accusation that he came close to causing a needless rebellion given the fact that he had no rivals well let me get at that one. First of all we're talking 2020 hindsight here. Back in 1485, England had just been through three years of a usurpation and rebellion. The re-adoption of Henry VI was only 14 years before. There were pretenders around every corner and around every year of Henry's reign. And for much of the time, there were powerful paymasters and supporters for those pretenders. Secondly, there's scarcely a hint of rebellion in 1507, 8 or 9, not a sausage. Yes, sure, everyone was glad to see him go, but that in itself does not mean he was following the wrong policy. And look, compare the way he treats his servants to his son's performance. I mean, his son doesn't set a high bar, it's got to be said, but the only man that Henry VII takes down is William Stanley. By and large, he stands by the men he chooses. He shows them great loyalty. And he was, after all, a king, with the responsibility to govern well and leave his kingdom in a good state for his son. With great skill, Henry pursued clear aims, security, wealth, law and order... Supremacy of the crown, stability of his dynasty. He didn't succeed in everything to the highest extent. Law and order, for example, was something of an epic fail. Bacon was overdoing it when he claimed that what he minded, he compassed. There was nothing wildly innovative or exciting about Henry, it must be said. He feels very much more like a medieval monarch than an early modern monarch. I'm also struck that while I've drawn parallels with the continental monarchies, with Henry's attempt to grow centralised royal power, the new monarchist thing, he sticks really rather endearingly to the English rules, doesn't he? Really, any king in search of absolute power had to get rid of that live-of-your-own rule. And no continental monarch would have tolerated this for a moment. In fact, he'd have laughed in the face of it. (laughs) Ha-ha, he'd have said. But Henry... Does nothing to challenge that, really. In fact, all of his avarice and financial extortions are essentially designed and because of those rules. Nonetheless, he's a problem solver. He makes sensible changes such as the development of the Privy Chamber, which will define the Tudor system of government. And also, he's absolutely his own man. At no point does any of his servants overshadow him. Everyone always knew who the decision-maker was who was in charge, again, unlike his son, and actually not even to the extent of Edward IV's relationship with William Hastings. And okay, even when he allows Empson and Dudley to go over the top, which clearly they do, and which clearly he allows, he's got the excuse of being in the grip of constant illness and suffering from the death of the people he loved most. So that's it. As far as I can see, Henry's sins are of the relatively minor kind. He left his son and successor a kingdom which was pretty well governed, which was peaceful, relatively prosperous, which faced no external threats, at peace with continental powers and supporters abroad, and even, would you believe it, even at peace with the Scots. And let me tell you, that's no mean achievement. He even left his son a handy emergency fund of maybe £300,000 in plate, though some historians go for a rather more dramatic £1.2 so I don't think that the whole Tudor propaganda thing can be taken as lies. So the phrase Tudor myth hmm, may be just a little exaggerated. Essentially, as far as Henry is concerned, I am now a fan. Next time then, it's on to a new reign. And what a reign we are on to. I mean, I know it's a difficult not to feel a little jaded. Henry VIII is all over the telly and films and books and what have you. But look, there's a reason for that. It's an absolutely amazingly fascinating period and has a fundamental impact on England and why we live in the kind of country we do today. And it's a period where many more people really begin to emerge in a really three-dimensional way as records and information improve. No, it'll be a hoot. Though I am going to take a brief detour first, if we are all OK with that. So next week, actually, I think we're going to do something about exploration. But that'll be fun too thank you all for your listening and comments and all that. To be specific this week, thanks to all of you who comment on iTunes. This is the biggest single marketplace of podcasts by far and having reviews there makes a big difference which used to be purely vanity and is now grubby commercialism and vanity. Thanks for example to the um, last king of Battlestar Earth who apparently listens to podcasts and who specifically promoted the Shedcast at the same time. I do love looking at what you all call yourselves on iTunes, by the way. Clearly, quite a few of you are short of a slice, which makes me feel at home. Anyway, thanks to all of you commenters, I read them all, and my tears drop silently onto my keyboard as I do so. Oakley Dokley, have fun everyone, good luck, and have a great week.